Okay, we've just read the first of Corinthians 1 and 2, and so we're going to think a little bit about this relationship between Paul and Corinth, because I find it really quite fascinating that here you have Paul, who was uh, maybe arguably one of the, the most outstanding followers of the Lord Jesus, relating to an ecclesia, to, to a group of individuals who were, um, I mean, I know we're all... Uh, failures in one sense or another but I mean these guys are really far out I mean they'd given up their faith in, in the resurrection uh, of the Lord Jesus, they had uh, failed in so many ways, they were getting drunk on the wine or the breaking of bread uh, it seems reading between the lines committing prostitution uh, turning the uh, table of the Lord into a, an, idol's, uh, an idol worship session with all that that involved and, and really they were far out these guys and yet Paul, this supremely spiritual person Person, relates to them so so positively, and yet without turning a blind eye to their obvious weakness. And I just wanted to uh, explore that a little bit, because it seems to me that what actually damages people's faith more than anything else is their inability to cope with the weakness of other believers. When people leave our community, it is not normally, in my experience, because they suddenly understood doctrine or theology, whatever you want to call it, uh, differently, but because they just got fed up with the behavior of other people. Uh, And a lot of that behavior is uh, admittedly very, very wrong. And yet, Paul here is dealing with people who are so weak, really so weak, and it's amazing how he manages to to deal with them. And so, I suggest that he does this, Uh, he he copes with them, um, because he understands them to be in Christ, because he understood them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just of Christ, but in Christ. What that means, I I think, is that he recognized the validity of their baptisms, that by baptism they had come into Christ, they had become clothed with Christ, and therefore, as he explains in more detail in Romans, they had been counted as if they were the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember his argument there that the righteousness of Christ, the mind of Christ, is imputed to us. And because of that, we are counted as him. And because of that, therefore, we can appear before the judgment seat of God uh, and be justified and be declared right. Not that we are, but because we are counted as him. And so, this helped Paul, I think, in dealing with others in their obvious weakness. Because he recognized them as if they were in Christ. And so he starts 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Uh, to those that are sanctified or made holy in Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? By being baptized into him. And he goes on and says that you have called upon yourselves the name of Jesus Christ, and you do that in, uh, in baptism. Now just following up this idea of sanctification, uh, let's just have a look at a couple of passages. Uh, John 10:36. John 10, verse 36 Jesus is the one whom the Father has sanctified. So then Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is the one who is ultimately perfect. Never sinned, holy, etc. Now he says in John 17 verse 19, For their sakes, that's 
us. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified. Now, how does that work out? It doesn't mean that, well, because Jesus was perfect, therefore we shall be perfect. That can't be the right interpretation, because we know from our own sad experience that that is not the case. So why then does he say, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified? I think it's because he recognises that as he was in this world, so the Father would count all of us who are in him. This is the whole argument in Galatians chapter 3, that the promises to Abraham were made to basically one man. Well, two men. Abraham and his seed, which as Paul labours, is in the singular, the Lord Jesus. And by baptism into Christ, we become that singular seed of Abraham. And only in that sense do those promises that were made to that individual seed or son become true of each of us. Now, carrying on with this uh, idea of us being sanctified, us being counted righteous because we are in Christ, who is a sanctified one, uh, Acts 26 Uh, verse 18 we read there uh, that we might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me now this is Jesus talking this is Jesus talking to, to Paul where he says that people are sanctified by faith in me and I suggest whenever we read this idea of in Christ there is the, the idea of faith or belief into Christ which is ultimately by baptism and, and faith in him and so that is the basis upon which Paul starts off his whole relationship with the Corinthians and I know statistical analysis when it comes to, to the Bible is uh, maybe of limited value, but I, I can't help but notice that the, the, word, the words Jesus or Christ or the Lord, when Lord is referring to Jesus, uh, occur almost every verse in these opening chapters of Corinthians. So he writes to them, knowing he's dealing with a, a difficult bunch in a difficult situation, but he is so Christ-centered. Now we can talk about being Christ-centered without uh, putting any meaning into those words. To be Christ-centered is to, uh, in this context, was to have the attitude to this difficult situation that he was approaching, that these people are in Christ. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, well, I determined, I judged, is the idea, not to know anything among you, bad translation, en, E-N in the Greek, uh, in. I determined, I judged, I decided not to know anything in you, save Jesus Christ. So then he's saying that he's approaching this whole uh, relationship with them situation by counting them as if they are in Christ. So he says, chapter 1, verse 4, I always thank God for the grace of God which is given you in, not by, as the AV says, but which is given you in Jesus Christ. Again, you're in Christ. You're brothers and sisters in him. And therefore you are covered by, by his grace. And he says that, verse 8, they are being confirmed to the end 
so that they will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is an amazing idea that people as wacky as, as the Corinthians, Paul, with all his spiritual insight and spiritual maturity, could say that he honestly, straight up honest, believed that they would be declared blameless in the day of judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like at the end of, of Jude, isn't it, the, that we might be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is the picture of the, the parable where the Lord Jesus says that when he comes again, we will come before him and he will say to us, well done, when I was hungry you gave me something to eat, when I was thirsty you gave me something to drink, well done, well done. And we'll actually have the neck to argue back with the Lord and to say, no, mistaken identity, uh, I didn't do that. When in fact he says you did. So he is going to count us righteous. And to such a point that at the day of judgment, it's not that he's going to be weighing, it, weighing up the situation and saying, well, uh, you know, uh, for five minutes you were in Christ and then you dropped out for a couple of minutes and then you, uh, you were pretty good for, for a couple of hours and then, uh, well, you see, then you sort of took a bit of a holiday, didn't you, for a couple of days uh, and then you sort of came back. No. We are... We have what I will call uh, the status of being in Christ. We are in a position whereby we are in him and all his righteousness is counted to us right now and also in the last day. got the same idea in Romans 8.33 and uh, there's quite a few connections actually between uh, I find Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 but we can't go into that now. Uh, Romans 8:33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's chosen ones? It is God that justifies. There is no charge as we stand as it were as sinners before the in the dark as it were before the bar. There there's no case. Well, why? Because it is God who justifies, who declares right. Because we are in Christ. So Paul might, it appears, just be coming out with a load of theology there in Romans. But actually, when you read here Corinthians, this is theology in practice. This is doctrine put, as it were, harnessed to a real situation. That if we, by baptism into Christ, are counted righteous, declared right and all the righteousness of the Lord Jesus is counted to us, that he, as our representative, covers us, so that we shall be declared blameless in that day, then we better get on and relate to each other now. There's no good turning away in disgust. And so, he says, verse 10, he, wants, he's, he laments the fact they are divided, because you should be perfectly joined together in the same mind. And in the same judgment. Now, unfortunately, this has been so ripped out of its context by people saying, well, we must all be of one mind. And what they mean by that is we've all got to have the same attitude about everything. And they also mean something else. And that attitude, that mind and that judgment has got to be my attitude and my mind and my judgment. How many times has there been this whole thing that, oh, the letter, or these days the email is sent to some poor brother or sister, or, or someone is hauled up in, to be interviewed, to see if we are of the same mind. Well, our idea of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ is not that we all think the same thing. That is not what this is saying. 
In that case, then, you would be asking for us to all turn into sort of automatons and lose our personality and individuality. Unity, the unity that the Bible speaks of, is not uniformity. And there's subtle difference there. So what does he mean then that you should have the same mind? Well, the answer is fortunately given in chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, but we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. Now he's writing there to the Corinthians, who were way out, and he says, but you, we, you and me, we have got the mind of Christ. Now, clearly enough, they didn't have the mind of Christ, and as Paul says in Romans 7, he himself lamented and was frustrated by his own failure, and the way that in his mind he always wanted to do, to gravitate towards that which was not of Christ. So, we have the mind of Christ must surely mean this is the status that is, that is counted to us. It's not the body, the physical body of Jesus, whatever it looked like, that is counted to us. We are counted as if we have his righteousness, which is ultimately a mental thing. It was the mind of Christ, which is counted as our mind. To put it in another way, his spirit is counted as our spirit. And our spirit is counted as his spirit. That is what Romans 8 is on about, and actually those difficult to understand verses in, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we just read, um, from, from verse 10 down to 15, I think that's what that's saying, but that, that, that's uh, another story. So then, he, he comes to this whole business of the Corinthians, and he, he's set himself up that he counts them as if they are in Christ, and he says, chapter 1, verse 30, of him are you in Christ, who of God is made unto us, you and me, Corinth and Paul, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So he's really emphasizing this, that he is united with them, because... The Lord Jesus Christ is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. And in that sense we can glory, verse 31, in the Lord. That is, because we are in Christ. And we can glory in that. Now, do you do that? Do you glory and rejoice because of your status? That you are counted righteous? That he is, his mind is counted as yours? Or is this all too good news? And it seems to me that the gospel in this sense is too good news, too good to believe. We immediately start saying, ah, but. You know, come out with all the Romans 7 stuff. But the whole point is, and Romans 8 follows right on from Romans 7, the whole point is that no, for all our dysfunction and weakness, by status we are in Christ. And the more strongly you believe that about yourself, the more strongly you have to believe it about any other man or woman who is in Christ. For all their immaturities and failures and fleshliness, which we, we of course, notice clearer than they do, and they notice ours clearer than we do. So we've got to treat our brethren like we treat ourselves. When Paul says in Romans 6, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, he's using the same word he's just been using, translated impute. As God imputes righteousness to you, you are to sort of impute it to yourself. You are to accept that and feel that, that he loves me and he counts me 
as far better than I am, but all the same I believe that that is how he feels about me, and so that is how I shall feel about myself. Now, it's not only a challenge to do that about ourselves, and everything in us cries out, but no, I am not worthy, Romans 7, I am uh, weak and I gravitate to the flesh every time, give me a choice, right or left, I'm likely to go left. Uh, yeah, that is how it is. But he loves me, and I am in Christ. And that's what you've got to keep on counting yourself as. Now, difficult as it is to do it to yourself, it's difficult likewise to do it to our brethren, our fellow believers, who are also so out there. Now, this is where Corinthians, I think, is very helpful. Uh, because, yeah, he says, First Corinthians 5, 6 and 7, he says, a little leaven or yeast, which they had in their bad attitude and presence of this incestuous uh, brother, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. Now, wait a minute. Did they have leaven or yeast in them, or did they not? He says, you've got a little leaven in you that is affecting the whole lump. Purge it out that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. Well, he seems to be saying two different things, that you have no yeast in you, you are unleavened. And then he says, yeah, but you do have some, get it out, because although it's a little bit, it's influencing the whole lump. So he's asking them to be in practice, to live in practice, what they were and are in status before God. He says in chapter 3, which you're going to read tomorrow, that um, although the Corinthians thought they were wise, actually they weren't. And yet he says in 1 Corinthians 10:15, I speak as to wise men. They weren't wise, but he speaks as to wise men. And yet, yeah, he said there in 1 Corinthians 1, we just read it to verse 30, that of him are you in Christ who of God is made unto us wisdom. So, because we're in Christ, his wisdom is counted to us. And so he can say, 1 Corinthians 10, 15, I speak as to wise men, not that they were, but as if they were, because they were in Christ. And so, this is how we are. We are counted as if we are the Lord Jesus. And as we struggle to believe that about ourselves, so we struggle to believe it about our brother. But, he, as I say, he, having made all this clear, he uh, starts off by, by, by bringing before them the, the problems in their behaviour. So the fact that we see each other as in Christ and loved by him and counted by him as perfect does not mean that we, can't, we turn a blind eye to others' failure in the same way as we do not turn a blind eye to our own. We're aware of our own failure and dysfunction. And so there's Paul facing off against Corinth. And 1 Corinthians 11, they were getting drunk on the wine of the breaking of bread. 1 Corinthians 15, they were um, denying that Jesus even rose from the dead, and yet they were mucking around, they were getting baptised for the dead, jumping in and out of the water, thinking that can save other people. They were, in chapter 6, in, involved with all ki kinds of um, uh, sexual misbehaviour, 
chapter 5 you've got this whole thing about incest going on there and people actually glorying in the whole thing that uh, this guy had slept with, his, uh, with his, one of his father's wives and uh, reading between the lines I think in chapter 11 you I think get the picture that they had turned the breaking of bread into an idol uh, worship session that involved cult prostitutes and all sorts of disgusting things at the breaking of bread and some people were turning this into a party and other people were, were there so poor they didn't even have anything to eat now yeah, there's Paul writing to these guys and I don't know where I would have started I really would not know where, where to start uh, I really wouldn't but Paul does and he starts not as we might imagine he starts with this whole thing about you are divided as if out of all the things he could pick on he picks on their division as if that was at least up there ranked amongst all the other things uh, and yet he sees this as possibly just as if not even more serious than all those other horrible things that were going on now this fits into a kind of theme that I, I perceive in, in scripture um, but when Paul gives these lists of sins you know sometimes he starts listing the works of the flesh and all the evil things that go on in society and he talks about what we might think are awful sins and then he slips in a couple of things that we might shrug our shoulders about and actually the Old Testament prophets do this as well when you think what Israel were up to let's say in the time of Jeremiah for example I mean it, the same old kind of things as Corinth was involved in and yet Jeremiah makes a huge issue about the fact that some guy had kept back just wages from someone who did some building work for him and he talks about that kind of injustice like it's up there with idolatry and all the rest of it whereas we might shrug and say yeah well unfortunately this happens a guy does a day's work and he doesn't quite get paid what he ought to yeah well that's unfortunately that's how people carry on isn't it in, in this world and yet for God that was that was absolutely out there that was absolutely terrible this injustice and lack of sharing with the poor this was for God absolutely unacceptable now just to give an example of what I mean from the New Testament just have a look at Romans chapter 1 now you read Romans 1 and he, you know, he's on there about the whole idea of Romans 1 and 2 is to convict every human being of the seriousness of their sin and the fact that they shall be condemned at the last day if not for God's grace okay so he talks in Romans 1 he starts going on about lesbianism and all kind of sexual perversion and you know, I turn to read it and think oh, I really don't want to read about all this stuff and uh, you know, he, he sort of labours the point almost uh, over about 15 verses he, he kind of really keeps on and on sort of saying the same old thing again and you think Paul okay lesbos, queer old dears all the rest of it yep okay Paul yep that's, that's not me and Paul's under inspiration he's really clever in the way he writes because he, he guesses I think his reader's response I think he knows that you and I are going to read that and say look I'm a sinner sure sure I'm a serious sinner but I don't do that all that stuff about lesbos and queer old dears that, that's absolutely out 
That's not for me. I may be a sinner, but I don't do that. And then he sort of, he, he, with a, a trick of the tail, he sort of comes right back at us. And he lists a whole load of sins, having, leading right on from all this talk about a reprobate mind to do those things which the AV says in 28 are not convenient. Um, indeed, a convenient translation. Um, then he goes on 29, that these people, their problem is fornication, wickedness, covetousness, envy, murder, and we're sort of happy, ah, murder, yeah, well, I I didn't murder anybody. Debate. Whisperers. Now, you know, you look at a lot of internet forums in our own community and other communities of, of, of believers, they're full of this kind of thing. Debate. Endless debate. Of a totally destructive and negative nature. Whisperers. Whisperers. Gossips. That's what it's all about. Backbiters. Do you know what? I'm pretty sure that he, whatever, might be gay, whatever it might be. Haters of God. And we're sort of happy again. Haters of God. Oh, that's not me. I don't hate God. Okay. Proud. Yeah. We're all proud. As soon as you say, ah, no, I'm not. <laughs> That's the whole thing, isn't it, with, with humility. As soon as you say, I, I'm, I'm humble, I'm not proud. I mean, you kind of blown it. Um, without understanding, unmerciful. Yeah. We all, if we're honest, struggle with forgiving people. Now, my point is that he's mixing these kind of things that, like, you know, not being merciful, whisperers, gossips, uh, not being forgiving, being proud. Um, he's mixing in those kind of things with all this stuff like hating God, murder, fornication, lesbos and queer ideas, and all this stuff. He's putting it all in the same thing, as if he knows that as soon as we say, huh, that's disgusting, I don't do that, well, even though I'm a sinner and all the rest of it, he's like, ah, you just stung yourself. Because you, to chapter 2 of Romans, you're inexcusable now, because you have condemned yourself. By judging another, you've done the very same things. We think, but I'm not. I didn't do that. I don't hate God, for example. But you do the same things in the sense that maybe he means that by condemning others, therefore the, uh, the sin that you condemn is counted to you. Or maybe he means because you've all done something in that list, you've done basically the same things as what they, they have done whom you so strongly condemn. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think we've got that again here, he's facing off against Corinth with all, all their misbehaviour and all the rest of it and uh, he picks on division and says this is awful we have the mind of Christ so, summing up then we who have been baptised into the Lord Jesus are covered in Christ we are secured in him who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ? 
Well, that word, Greek word translated separate, I'm quoting from Romans 8 here, um, it's the same word translated to divorce. The only way we can get out of it is if we initiate a divorce against God. If we say to God and the Lord Jesus, I'm out with you, goodbye. I sever my covenant with you. That's not any of us here. I don't believe that. We're all weak, sure. And we all don't respond as we should to his grace. And we're all uh, far weaker, dare I say, than we should be. Um, uh, sort of implies that a little bit of weakness is okay. But uh, uh, you, you know what I'm saying. And yet we are in Christ. And we are counted by him, by God, as if we are the Lord Jesus Christ. Now maybe we will never quite get the wonder of all this until we finally stand before the day of judgment, even though we are in essence standing in the dock right now. Uh, judgment in that sense is ongoing. Um, maybe we just won't get all this finally in terms of uh, kind of cognizance on a sort of um, intellectual level emotional level by that I mean that like we don't kind of feel all this as we ought to uh, until maybe finally we have to stand there in front of him and have the Lord Jesus telling us you're wonderful you're great you're unblameable as we read here in the first Corinthians 1 um, you're blameless nothing is counted bad to you only good you're wonderful and so it's no surprise that Revelation says that in that day he will have to wipe away all tears from our eyes because there is something here that's really a hyper, that's really beyond, that's really going to be so amazingly abundantly above all we ask or think that you and I can stand there and be told, well done, you're great because you're in Jesus come into the kingdom and the even more wonderful thing is that if we were to have the faith and the uh, perception to, 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 to grasp it it's actually being said to us right now because nothing can separate us from the love of God which was in Christ Jesus thank you